welcome back to another episode of the Zach Evans Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, I'm really excited about this episode. I enjoyed going back and editing it and just listening listening to it again because I, I feel like um, there's some episodes that as I'm editing and re-listening to them that I'm pleased with the explanation and there's others that I feel like they leave a lot to be desired. But th- this is one that although there's a lot more that could be expanded on this topic, um, I'm really happy with the way the explanation worked out. And that's on the topic of love, what it is, what it isn't, and without directly going deep into you know, the actual cultural misunderstanding of love that's currently just incredibly pervasive, um, still dealing with what love actually is and comparing that to what people think it is. And I'm, I'm really, really happy with this explanation. And I hope that it's helpful to you. I, I like explanations that kind of click into place like puzzle pieces and help me kind of see the mosaic of life, the Christian life, in more of its totality. That's really what I enjoy. And if I'm aiming at anything when I'm talking about things uh, or trying to figure something out, that's kind of what I'm aiming at is, you know, this feels like there's a puzzle piece missing here or we need to build a bridge between this thought and that thought and how do we do that? And there's no I mean, bigger topic really uh, right now than love. I mean, we're in the middle of a, you know, sexual revolution um, that is far crazier and more dangerous than the last one. And uh, our definition of love as a result is just absolutely decimated, just decimated. And so I hope that you'll find this explanation as engaging as, uh, as I did in studying it and kind of just thinking it through, but uh, I hope that it'll be helpful to you and, and help you be able to, you know, have conversations with people about what love actually is. And kind of we're going to draw a distinction between kind of a, a feeling love and a working love. And, and we're going to notice how the definition of love over time has just become degraded. It's devolved. And as Christians, we have an explanation of love that's actually more true to the thing itself, obviously, but uh, also, I believe, just makes sense. It, it just makes more sense. The modern definition of love doesn't make any sense. And it's not working, by the way. <laughs> the type of love that our society is predicated on is you know, creating mass disaster. And so we need to reclaim that. We need to reclaim love for what it actually is. And so uh, I'm excited about this, and I hope that it'll be a blessing to you. Also, I did go see Sound of Freedom last night. And I'm thinking about doing an episode potentially to release later this week on kind of a, a review of Sound of Freedom. Of course, the Jim Caviezel movie about Tim Ballard, and uh, who was someone who fought against uh, child trafficking all across the world. And it was really a, a fantastic movie. Um, and there's a lot of talk about it, a lot of hype about it. And I don't know who all has seen it and hasn't seen it. Um, but it's definitely something worth talking about and a very interesting film. The reaction is very interesting and, uh, I've got some thoughts on it. So thinking about maybe trying to get that out later this week or maybe beginning of next week. But anyway, if you're interested in that, that sounds good to you, uh, then let me know, but we'll get into this episode. It's entitled love works 
and we're going to talk about why love is not just a feeling. So as always, please make sure you're following the podcast, leave us a five-star review, and uh, share with your friends. One of the biggest things you can do is just share the podcast posts on social media, share the quotes, put it in your stories on Instagram, and uh, that's a huge help to us. So we'll jump into this episode entitled Love Works. Enjoy. So Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, and the Bible says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Which that's quite a statement when you think about it. Verse 9, For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then notice verse 10, especially the verb used here where it says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So in verse 8 and verse 10, we kind of have bookend statements. The first statement is, love fulfills the law. And then Paul says, all right, let me tell you how love fulfills the law. And then he ends it with that same statement. Therefore, he says, for these reasons, love fulfills the law. Now, think about the law of Moses. So Paul said that the law of faith and the law of Moses are different because the law of faith says, believe and you'll live. The law of Moses says, and Moses said the same thing, do and you'll live. Right? So the law says do. It compels you to action. Now watch what fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. The law that calls us to action. Think about that. That's very interesting. Love is what fulfills the call to action. All right, so if we want to define love in a generation that has no idea what it is, it would be a good thing to go back to the biblical definition of love. But I think that even modern Christians, especially modern Christians, don't understand what love actually is. And so Paul says that love is something that fulfills God's call to mandated righteous action. That's incredible. So he says, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So I want to explain kind of this concept. And really what we're going to do is we're going to take kind of, without directly addressing it, kind of from the side, address the cultural misunderstanding of what love actually is. Like when you think about the phrase, love is love. Right? Well, I mean, what does that even mean? There's a guy, I listened to an amazing podcast last week. Uh, with Jordan Peterson, who I listen to quite a bit, with a guy, Dr. James Lindsay, who's not a, not a Christian, but he softened his stance on Christianity. He actually used to be one of the so-called new atheists, which is Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and others, Christopher Hitchens. And he began to see, I guess, the degradation in our culture caused by the modern atheist stance and began to say, wait a second, this is like, this is the bad thing that Dawkins was worried about that would take place if we got away from Christianity. It's interesting that Dawkins has attacked Christianity for decades, and he said years ago, he said, my only concern is that in removing ourselves from Christian moorings, it will usher in something far worse. So he doesn't believe Christianity is a good. He believes that religion is akin to a virus, is the way that he's explained it but he's afraid that removing it will usher in something worse. You're living in that reality now. And ironically, that reality is 
in part caused by men like him who have pushed the removal of, of, Christian, of the Christian anchor from our society to some extent. But in their conversation, they were talking about Marxism and how the modern, the, the current postmodern belief that's rampant in our society is actually a form of neo-Marxism. You don't have to understand all that, but if you were here on the Wednesday night when I talked about postmodernism, or if you uh, were here at the conference or listened to my lecture online about postmodernism and you enjoyed it, you should listen to two actually smart people who know what they're talking about talk about it. When James Lindsay and Jordan Peterson talk about it, it's absolutely fascinating. But one of the things that Lindsay does that's made him kind of uh, reputable, I would say, is he takes their words and their phrases. Like, okay, when you say diversity, what do you mean? And then he'll break that down. He'll absolutely dismantle it. He'll trace the word back to its earliest uses. Like, for example, um, when they say, no, 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 we're not Marxists. So he'll go back to Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and these guys and say, wait a second, they said they were Marxists. They said, we are Marxists. So he traces back the thought all the way to its source. He's very good at that. All right, well, when they say something like love is love, it's like, stop, what do you mean? Where did this idea come from? All right, well, we could do the same thing with even the modern Christian redefinition of love, which seems to me to be a blanket permissiveness. That's essentially what modern Christianity thinks love is. It's just blanket permissiveness. It's hard to distinguish between our current definition of love and society's current definition of tolerance. It seems like they're one and the same. Our society calls it tolerance, and we call it love. Like when we say, hate the sin, love the sinner. What do you mean by that, though? Like, I agree in principle, but what do you mean by that? Because we may not mean the same thing. What do you mean by love? Okay, so when someone says, for example, when you're dealing with young people, all right, and you have 12-year-olds who are telling each other, I love you. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Do you even know what you mean? Do you know what the word means? So I tell kids all the time, and I'm not against teenage dating or necessarily, I'm not against that, but if it's handled right, it can be fine. But you have to, again, what do you mean by dating? <laughs> what are your protocols, right? Um, you can call it the most conservative term in the world, and if you handle it poorly, it's going to end up bad. So you call it whatever you want. I don't care as long as the principles are right. But I tell when I was uh, in the teen class, and I'm still their youth pastor, but I'd say, look, if you're 14 years old, sitting at lunch at school, naming your children, it's over. <laughs> You've ruined it. You're done. You might go ahead and break up. It's done. Because the pace that you would have to go out now, you'd have to come to a screeching halt in the pace of your relationship. You've known each other for three weeks, and you're saying, I'm madly in love with you, and I want to marry you, and what are we going to name our kids, and what color paint do you want the inside of our house to be? It's like, you're done. <laughs> you're done. Okay, so when a 14-year-old or 15-year-old says to somebody, I love you, the question is, what do you mean by that? All right, here's a question for all of us. What do we mean when we use the word love? What do you mean? What do we mean? When we say to God, God, I love you, what do you mean? And how do we know that our definition of love is the same as his? And I believe that we can pass our definition of love through this filter and find out in the end if what we really have is love. So I want to talk for a few minutes on the subject, love works. I'm going to give you um, the modern, normally when I define a word, I use an older dictionary. 
especially when I'm defining biblical words. This, the gold standard, in my opinion, is the Webster's 1828 dictionary to define Bible words. But if you want to know how word usage has changed, you can compare an older dictionary with a modern dictionary. So here's the word love in the Oxford English Dictionary, and I think this is the one which everyone's loaded onto the, the Mac operating system. It says, an intense feeling of deep affection. An intense feeling of deep affection. Now, that's not wrong. So love is often associated with an intense feeling of deep affection. But here's the thing. Love can exist without a feeling of deep affection by definition. So then the question is, is this actually the primary definition of love if love itself can exist without the deep affection, without the intense feeling? If the criteria for love is that you must have an intense feeling, can you always look at your spouse? What if the intense feeling is disgust? Like, what do, you, what do you do with that? What if it's frustration? Like, does that count as the intense feeling? That's not what it means. So can you honestly look at your spouse at all times and they say, do you love me? And you go, uh, I mean, maybe. <laughs> like, my intense feeling isn't the best right now. So I don't think that that is the primary definition of love. In fact, if we look at the word love and where it came from, the etymology of the word, it's actually of Germanic origin, and it comes in the form of, I don't know how exactly how you'd pronounce it, maybe, maybe life or, or maybe even leaf, I'm not sure, L-I-E-F. And if you've taken German, you might could tell me, but L-I-E-F. And here's the primary meaning of that word. You ready? To be free, prompt, ready, or willing. Could that be any more different than the Oxford English Dictionary? To be free, prompt, ready, or willing. That's incredible. Think about that. Love is free. Love is prompt. Love is ready. I love that. And love is willing. Now, here's the thing. Those aren't intense feelings of deep affection. They're not. Here's what they are. They are dispositions to action. That's, that gets me excited right there. They are dispositions to action. And that agrees with what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9. That love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the disposition I have towards my fellow man that compels me to act in their best interest. That's what love is. With or without the intense feeling of deep affection. So these dispositions, they're not feelings, they're more like dispositions. And these dispositions lead Love to be active in the life of its object. Okay, so this distinguishes it from a feeling. For example, if love is free, then you don't just hand it out to people who make you feel a certain way. Right? That's an earning love. So if love is free, it means you disseminate it without discrimination. You give it out freely. You don't sit back and wait for people to earn your affection. If love is prompt, it is there when people need it, not when they've made you feel like they deserve it. Not when they have elicited a feeling of deep affection in you. That's a very shallow form of love. If love is ready, it must be ready to do something, not just ready to feel something. Notice the difference between the original meaning of the word love and ours today. 
So we have taken what was once, and I believe biblically this is the case as well, primarily a disposition towards, we might say, benevolent action and watered it down to the point that it's just an intense feeling. There's a lot of intense feelings that you can have. I would say that very few of them are love. You break your arm, that's an intense feeling, but that's not love. So there can be love without feeling, but there is no love without action. There can be love without feeling, but there can be no love without action. So yes, feelings are a part of love, as we're going to see, but they are a minor key. They're a minor key in love's orchestra. So to properly understand what love is, it would probably be good to go back to the author of love and the text that he's given us. The Bible says, 1 John 4, 16, that God is love. Now think about that. Think about that wrapped in our current definition. God is a being not simply disposed to intense feeling of deep affection, but he is disposed to act on our behalf. That's who he is. God does not sit up in heaven on his throne feeling intensely at all times and says, that's how I love you, right? He is a God, not just of feeling, but he's a God of action. Okay, so the word love shows up a lot in your Bible, total in all of its forms. This is my count. Somebody's going to listen to this and be like, you're way wrong. But by my count, it's like 433 times in all of its form. That's, that's, that's quite a lot. Now, I want us to notice a few different times when it's used. So one thing that you can do when you're reading your Bible and you want to know what a word means, there's a law, say, you know, I use that word loosely, but as far as a an interpretive law that we use when trying to understand what a word means, you can do something called, use something called the law of first mention. So go back to the first time that word was used in the scriptures and see how it's used. And often you get the most basic definition. And it's really cool. Um, I preached a sermon, a Christmas sermon, where I, I talk about the love of God and work through the different definitions of love. We're not going to do the same exact thing. But what happens is a lot of times you see the evolution, if you let me use that word, of the word in the text and it kind of takes on grander and grander meanings like for example if you go from the first mention of the word love in genesis 27 which we'll read in a minute and then you go all the way to say you know first corinthians chapter 13 and you see that word there used as charity look at paul's definition of charity in first corinthians 13 compared with the first time the word love is used in genesis 27 could not be more different and i'll show you what i mean so uh, if you will turn in your bibles to genesis chapter 27 and verse 4 all right, so this is a story of Isaac, and he tells Esau, you know, go kill a deer, bring it back to me. Look at verse 4, and make me savory meat such as I what? Love. Okay, so this is the first mention of the word love in your Bible. And all the guys said amen, Brother Gabe's back there snacking on some quiche. Like, Isaac says, I love me some venison. I mean, make me that savory meat which I love. So the first use of the word love in your Bible is a very base definition. And it's a man who's drooling over some food. Okay, so this is a form of affection. It's an intense feeling of deep affection for food. Okay, so my wife and I, we, we got away for a couple days this week and we went to Atlanta. And we, uh, one of our first restaurants, first date that we ever had, official date we ever had, we went to a restaurant called La Grada, but it was the Ravinia location, which was in the basement of the, uh, the bottom of the Crown Plaza. They, they shut that part down, but the OG La Grada is still in downtown Buckhead. 
and it's classic Italian restaurant. Like it's a 4.9 on Open Table with like 5,000 reviews. Like it's it's crazy. Like that just doesn't happen. But you pull up and it's this old-looking building. Like it looks like an old folks' home. It doesn't look good. You walk in the lobby. They share they share a building with a um, you know apartments essentially. And you walk in the foyer. It's not their foyer. It smells like mothballs. It just smells like old people. <laughs> like it's not good. You walk in the elevator, go all the way downstairs. And then there's, you know, a beautiful restaurant. So we're like, well, let's go to, like, the OG, you know, La Grotta. Let's go there. Because we had our first date at La Grotta. Uh, I said uh, that I loved her at La Grotta. She didn't say she loved me back. That's another story. Um, <laughs> got engaged at La Grotta. We had our rehearsal dinner at La Grotta. And so, like, well, let's go to the original. So we did. And uh, we sat outside on the patio, and it was just beautiful. There's a beautiful garden outside. And so uh, I was like, man, I got some really cool pastas. Let's order one of these pastas as an appetizer. And so the first one on the list, and I was trying to decide between two, there was something called, the, the guy kept saying it in like an Italian way, but he's like totally just from here, you know what I mean? So, so I'm like, is it Sacchetti? He's like, no, it's a, it's a Sacchetti. Like he said it like that. It was very kind of weird. But he's like, it's Sacchetti. It's the only word he said in an Italian accent. And if you read the description, it said it was beggar's purse pasta. So it literally looks like a little money bag. So it looks like, you know, literally like a, a bag of money. And uh, it's in a white truffle sauce. And I'm just like, ooh, so it sounds amazing. So he, I was like, I'm having trouble deciding between these two. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, this is the one. He's like, that's the one. I said, okay. So we got it. And it was a little appetizer. It's only probably like eight things of pasta or whatever in this, in this sauce. Guys, I'm telling you. Okay, if y'all said, let's play hooky and let's go right now, I wouldn't go. But I'd think about it. I'd be very <laughs> tempted to go. It was absolutely incredible. It's the best pasta I've ever had. It's one of the best one bites of food that I've ever had. And I, I'm, okay, I'm not, not joking. That's not, it's not oysters and, and pearls from per se. But, so I'm a foodie. Like, I like to, everywhere I go, I'm looking for the best restaurants or whatever. I, I love it. This was incredible. It was amazing. And we were just gushing over it. Okay, so we get done with our meal. It blew away our entrees. Like, I had this beautiful uh, duck confit uh, entree that was nominated for a James Beard Award. Like, it's a, that's a big, that's a really big deal. I'm like, just give me more of the pasta. Like, this is good, but give me more of the pasta. So we're there, we're like, where are we going to eat tomorrow night? And I'm like, so Sarah, I think Sarah was like, can we come back here tomorrow night? We went back again the next night and just got pasta. The entire staff was like, you're back again? Like, they all came over to our table. They're like, guys, you're back, you know? It was hilarious. We left, I'm like, see you tomorrow night, you know? And I'm telling you, that thing was absolutely incredible. Now, what you're seeing is the way that Isaac felt about that savory meat, okay? So when I say that I love that pasta, there's an intense feeling of deep affection in my heart for that pasta. Okay, but here's the thing. So I can't transpose that love, right, that definition of love into all the other areas of my life and say that that's what love is. And yet that's kind of what our current generation has done. We have made the dopamine rush of physical relationships or maybe the temporary oxytonin high of the beginning of a relationship, we have made that our definition of love. And what I'm saying is that's no different than Isaac saying, can you make me my favorite meal? It's the same thing. Patrick um, in the Philippines, Brother Patrick, we went over there and, and we teach in the public schools, we witness in the public schools, and we, we see literally thousands of kids saved every time we go. And we have access that the average Filipino doesn't have. And, we're able to go class to class and preach the gospel with an interpreter. 
it's really, it's absolutely incredible. And they love us being there and want us there. But one year they kind of cracked down on that. So we had to have a reason to get in. And the reason that we had was it was Valentine's Day. And so we did a thing on relationships. And so I spoke on dating and Patrick spoke on love, I think, and love and marriage. And so we were there under the values program. And one of the things that Patrick said, he made this point, essentially a similar point to this, and said, look, most of the time when a guy tells a girl, I love you, He's saying, I love you like I love longanisa. Longanisa over there is this, this uh, like sweet sausage, and it's really good. But, but he's, he, so it was kind of funny, and they snickered and laughed. He's exactly right. He's exactly right. Sometimes when we say, I love you, to a person, we love them in the same exact way that we love sakete. Like, it's the same kind of love. It's just the dopamine rush that we feel participating in this mutual activity. Like, that's all it is. And once that starts to level out and run out, we're done. We're done. So I think that it's fitting that the first definition of love is this guy's love for his favorite food because that is a very basic, base, animal almost type of love. Look, why do dogs get excited about dog treats? I saw a thing of a photographer where she takes pictures of a dog as they're about to eat the treat. And it's hilarious. They toss the treat in their mouth and like their face is all like contorted and they look so happy. Okay, so a dog feels that same kick. An animal. Animals bond, right, mother and child. And there's feel-good chemicals for the animal. Okay, so that can't be all what love is. And that's not the biblical example that we're given of love. We're going to skip over a lot of these, but the second time the word love is mentioned, it's used in Genesis 29, 20. And how is it used? It is used to describe the affection that Jacob had for Rachel. Remember that story? Okay, so question, was it a feeling or an action? Okay, the answer is both. It's not always easy to pull the two apart. It's easy to see the hypocrisy of having one without the other, though. So Jacob had a natural feeling of attraction and affection for Rachel, but what followed the feeling that validated it and proved its love? The end result of his love was him being willing to work, work, there's that word again, love, work it, to work 14 years to take her to wife. 14 years. So he could have felt strongly for her, but what if he turned down Laban's offer to wait seven years? Okay, well then he obviously doesn't love her that much. Or he doesn't love her enough to wait. Would Rachel have believed, no, I love you, I I do love you, it's just, I don't want to wait the seven years. I would wait seven years for that pasta, okay? Like, seriously, no, I'm kidding. Seven minutes, maybe. So this is because feelings are the smallest and shallowest form of love, and for love to be complete, it has to be accompanied with action, by definition. All right, if we keep going, Genesis 29, 32, we find the next time the word love is used, or one of the next times. Jacob never intended, in this text, to marry Leah. That whole thing is just an absolute debacle. He works seven years for Rachel. At the last minute, Laban, who's a crook just like Jacob, pulls a wife swap on him. It's the first episode of wife swap and gave him Leah instead. So this put both of them in a really tough position because there's no natural affection. There's no natural attraction. So Jacob did not naturally love Leah. He did not have the same level of natural attraction and affection for her that he had for Rachel. All right, verse 30, we find that Jacob struggles to love Leah because his feelings toward her were different than his feelings toward Rachel. Notice that, that the feeling can make love 
easier or more difficult, but it doesn't change what the action should be relative to love's object. They're exactly the same. Jacob has duties to perform as a husband. If he performs those feelings with or without feeling, that is love. That is love without the deep and intense feelings of affection. So Jacob didn't love Leah as he should have. In fact, if you notice this, his lack of love for her, and and it seems that he obviously did prefer Rachel. Notice that, that his actions were not even. He did not treat them both properly. This is also the Bible's condemnation of polygamy, by the way. So God doesn't have to come out and say, and by the way, polygamy is wrong. Like, it's obviously wrong. Look, every time it's introduced in the Bible, it messes things up drastically. So she thought, like, same thing that, that it's so, people are so dumb. Excuse my French. They are so dumb because they, they, they'll read a great novel where a novel is making a, a moral point, making a moral point. And the moral is in the story. It's in the narrative. If the author came out and said, and that one's very bad, people would go, this book stinks. This guy can't write. It's way more powerful when it's packed in the narrative. It's way more obvious almost when it's packed in the narrative. That's the way we think too, by the way. We think in stories. You think about your life in a story. You narrate your own life as a story. And the Bible fits that perfectly. That was free. That's off to the side. Okay. This you got to pay for. So true love is free and cannot be earned. But Jacob did not treat Leah that way, so it perverted her way of thinking about love. So then what did she do? She said, oh, I'm going to have a child. Now my husband will love me, she said. So she thought, well, I can earn it from him. It's like, no, it's freely given by action. It cannot be earned by your action. She understood it in reverse. And by the way, Jacob probably learned that behavior and that way of thinking from his mother and his father. Isaac played favorites, and so did his wife. Rebecca played favorites, and then Jacob played favorites, and then Jacob despised his brother. This guy had no idea what love was, not even the faintest clue. So in these first few instances, we see love as a craving. We see it as a natural feeling of affection and attraction for someone. We see it as a preferential love where Jacob preferred Rachel over Leah. And then we see it as a misunderstood love. So all of these things are imperfect versions of love. And it's just like, you know, we use the term puppy love for young people who are in love. And puppy love is love. It's just immature and incomplete and shallow love. It's not that it's not love. And we've got to be careful, I guess talking to young people about it because they, they do really feel it intensely. And you have to respect the fact that they have this intense feeling. You have to guide them through that, not just like bat it down. That's, that's what us dads struggle with. We're just like, wow, no, you can't, can't do that. Stop feeling that way, you know. But we need to navigate it more wisely than that. All right, well, if we keep going, Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, and obviously we're skipping over many instances of the word love, but this is one of the climactic ones in the Old Testament. It's part of the Ten Commandments. The third commandment, actually, this is a part of the third commandment, where God says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. All right, so that's the third commandment. Don't make any graven images. Now, look at the reason that God gives. Follow me here. Why? Why can't they make any graven images? He says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that, watch this, hate me. Hate me. Then he says, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me. Now watch this. There are people, God says, there are people who hate me, and there's people who love me. Okay, so God would know 
what the definition of hating God is and what the definition of loving God is. Okay, how does God in the text distinguish between those who love him and hate him? Watch this. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So what's the difference? What's the difference between, this is God speaking, what's the difference between the person who loves God and doesn't God? It's nothing. He says nothing about intense feelings of deep affection. Nothing. He says there are those who break my commandments and there's those who keep them. The people who despise my law and break my law, they hate me. The people who keep my commandments love me. That's love. Love is the keeping of the commandments. Love is action, and you might even say behind that, is the disposition towards right and proper action. Okay? So the Bible consistently describes love in this way, as an action or a series of actions. Listen to this. This is uh, what C.S. Lewis would call like a cumulative argument. Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and have intense feelings of deep affection as you listen to worship music. No. He says, and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. So love me. How? Do what I say. Do what I said. So listen, and this is so obvious with your kids. Mommy, I love you. I love you too, baby. Go clean your room. No. It's like, what? we got we to gotta figure this out. There's a little hypocrisy going on over here. Deuteronomy 30, 16. I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. There it is again. John 14, New Testament, Jesus says, this is Jesus, not Old Testament, like <laughs> the way some people have described him, the mean God of the Old Testament, right? Which is not true. He says, showing mercy unto thousands that love me. He's a just God. But John 14, 15, here we have who the modern people think are the compassionate Jesus who just floats above the ground blowing kisses and giving out free hugs, you know. That Jesus, here's what he says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Love is action. John 14, 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. John 14, 23, if a man love me, he will keep my words. So I can't say that I love God because I have intense feelings of deep affection for him. I can't say that. We have an entire generation of Christians who define love that way. Their love for God is simply intense feelings of deep affection. Question, since when has that been the definition of love for any relationship? It's not. Try to predicate any relationship on intense feelings of deep affection and see how far you get. John 15, 10, if you, if you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. 1 John 5, 2 and 3, written by the disciple, the Bible says, whom Jesus loved, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God. I mean, can you be any more emphatic than that? This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And notice this, here's a feeling and his commandments are not grievous. There's a feeling. I know that I really love him when I do what he says and I'm not griping about it. So that's the opposite. So the feeling is on the other side of the action. Not in the previous part of the action, but on the other side of the action. I keep his commandments regardless of my feelings, regardless of the way that I feel about them, and then I know that I'm where I need to be when I start to feel some kind of way about what I'm doing. Okay, so this is the exact reversal of the modern definition of love. The modern definition of love is feel compels us to act. Wrong. Wrong. 
the biblical definition, I would say the proper psychological definition, because this would make sense that if the Bible, what the Bible is saying is true, it should show up in our physiology, right? Obviously, right? It's not divorced from reality. This isn't just some abstract principle that floats out in the ether, right? It has to have like an actual implication in your life. So what that means is the best way to feel love on a regular basis would be to act properly towards its object. That's what that means. Regardless of the feeling, and the action will produce some feeling over time. That's true. So God associates love with action. God tells us that if our love for him does not produce obedience to him, then it's not love. And I can feel warm and fuzzy about God when I listen to Christian music. I can enjoy talking about the Bible with other people. I can get all emotional when I give a testimony. But none of those things are loving God. None of them. So here's something that I've noticed. Okay, this is just an observation, not a criticism. It's just an observation because, you know, as a pastor, you work with these people and you try to help these people. But this is actually true. And, and now there's even been studies about this. But I noticed this years ago that people who go on social media and just overtly and, and incredibly often gush over their spouse and glorify their spouse on social media, like extremely so, not just the occasional birthday appreciation post or, you know, I got, husband got a promotion, I'm really proud of him. I'm talking about the just like, you know, average thing. It's just like, this is the greatest thing ever. He let me get my nails done. And that's a 3000 word thesis on why he's the best husband ever because I got my nails done. So when, when you see that, what that screams is relationship problems. It screams relationship problems because what that is, it's an apology. It's an apology. I'm sorry for being a jerk. I'm going to tell the world how awesome you are. That's where it is. Doesn't mean that the last post that you put out, that that's what I think it is, okay? And just understand that. But people who chronically do that, it's a symptom of an unhealthy relationship. Just like couples who don't argue, don't stay together. Couples who don't argue, divorce. One of the keys to staying together is arguing. Why is that? Because the couples who don't argue have the same problems. They just don't talk about them. They sweep it under the rug and they don't deal with their problems. That's a problem. That's an issue. And if you don't argue, either you're, you need to write the book so I can read it, okay? Uh, some people argue more than others. Some of it has to do with personality, right? Maybe you or both are just super submissive, and that's great. That's the way that it should be. So loving God is not just a feeling. In fact, at this most fundamental level, it's not a feeling at all. It's an action. So what I'm saying is the warm and fuzzy that we see on the external isn't always corresponding to an actual love in the person for its object. That can be very deceiving. All right. So love is more than a feeling or an emotion. In fact, sometimes there is no feeling or emotion in love. Talk about a few things and we'll be done. Notice this. Sometimes love involves negative emotions and feelings or a lack of pleasure. Sometimes doing the loving thing actually elicits negative feelings in you. It makes you feel bad or it brings a natural, self-inflicted, in a good way, hurt on you because you've chosen to love something. For example, Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Question, does God feel intense feelings of deep affection as he scourges us and chastens us? Okay, do you? When you punish your child, do you feel intense feelings of deep affection? If you do, you need to see your therapist and talk to them about that. Okay, so what do you feel? You're grieved. You're grieved. 
There's no pleasure in that. I had a preacher one time, I preached a sermon in the Philippines, and I talked about Jesus on the cross and how it says that he, seeing the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. My, my point was the cross was not the joy. The joy was on the other side of the cross. He took issue with that. He said, no, no, no. He said, no. He says, the Bible says that it pleased the Father to scourge the Son. It pleased Him. Do you feel that way as a father? Ask Him, do you feel that way as a father when you punish your child that it pleases you? It's pleasurable to you? And he's, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, that, that makes no sense to me. There's a negative emotion associated with scourging and chastening. It grieved the Father. He turned His back. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is all negative emotion. So, look, it's not just true in your child rearing. It could be true trying to help a friend. I had a young person in our youth department that I invested more in than anybody else, disproportionately, I would say, and I tried to help him. But one of the things that you can't do is save somebody against their will in a metaphysical sense. Like, you just can't do it. You can drag somebody out of a burning building. You can't drag them out of their bad habits. You just can't. You can't drag them out of their self-inflicted, you know, imprisonment. Like you just can't do that. So I tried to help this kid so much, but sometimes what happened was the more that I loved him, what did Paul say? The more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. So the more I loved this young man, the more he thought, you don't like me. You don't love me. Why don't you just tell me it's okay or whatever? It's like, because I'm loving you and you have no idea what love is. That's why. Because you're always standing on the edge of the cliff threatening to jump and I'm the guy who pulls you off and then you're mad at me because you have no idea what love is. So Paul said, the more abundantly I love, the less I be loved. So sometimes the more you love, the less pleasurable love is in that relationship in some cases. All right, the point is, God's definition of love has very little to do with emotion or pleasure, and sometimes it brings about the opposite. Love must have action. Love's incomplete without it. Love doesn't always feel but love always does. And we've tried to change love into something that it's not. We've tried to take something that is spiritual and make it emotional. And that's a very small part of love. But love was not invented, if you will, to give me an emotional high, but to give me the best reason possible to do what's best for those around me. It's a disposition towards benevolent action. So God not only explained what love really is to us, but then he exemplifies that. Because remember, the Bible says that God is love. It's not just that God loves. It's that God is love. And what that means is that God is a being in relationship. The Father loved the Son through the Spirit for all eternity. That's what that means. Unless God is triune, unless he's more than one person, the statement God is love cannot be true. Because there's no one for God to love. But if God is a being in relationship, then God is love. Love. Okay, then what happened? A couple things happened. One, creation jumps out of that relationship, right? So out of this loving relation, what happened? Creation happened. God said, and let us make man. Creation springs out of love. You even see that in marriage. That little guy right there is an expression of love, right? He came into the world because of beings in relationship. The same is true with God and his creation of the world. Why did God create the world? He created the world because of love. If God wasn't loving, the world would not exist. If God was not a being in relationship, I could say that it's very possible the world would not exist or it would not exist as such. Okay, but then what did God do? Not only did He create, which is an expression of love, but then He entered into that creation. Amen. He entered into that creation and gave. John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible that we don't understand. For God so loved the world. Amen. For God so loved the world that He 
gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He loves it. Romans 5.8, But God commended, that word commended means to prove, but God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. So there you have God not only disposed to action, but acting. I love the song the ladies sing, and we'll finish with this, where they say, and with his arms held open wide, he said, I love you this much. And it says, he loved me to death. It's exactly right. God did not just feel sorry for me. He was not just emotional when he thought about me. God's heart did not just go pitter-patter when he looked at me. In fact, God could see every sin I would ever commit and every time I would ever let him down and every time I would ever disappoint and embarrass him. And in spite of my undeserving sinful nature, God decided to perform the greatest act of love in the history of the world. Why? Because greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Christ-like love is a I am willing to let you drive nails through my hands to save you kind of love. That's what it is. It is not just I feel some kind of way about you. Why is self-sacrifice the greatest form of love? Here's why. The answer is actually found in something Satan said to God in Job 2.4. All that a man hath will he give for his life. So then to deny that most basic primal instinct of self-preservation and to substitute it with self-sacrifice. That's the greatest form of love. Why? Because love is not just an intense feeling of deep affection. Love is free, prompt, ready, and willing to do what? To sacrifice on the behalf of the other person. Because love doesn't just feel. Love works. Love works. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a five-star review and follow to get new episodes sent directly to your phone every single Tuesday. Find us on social media at The Zach Evans Podcast. God bless.